a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to talk about a very important subject that is uh, altogether too forgotten and neglected by mainstream media, which is one of the reasons we have to bring it up here on A Better World and bring greater awareness, attention, and education about some of the details regarding nuclear disarmament and our entire relationship to nuclear energy. To discuss this topic is a gentleman that we had on actually very recently at a roundtable discussion based on the 11 Days of Global Unity headed up by Rick Olfek, and that is Jonathan Granoff, who is an attorney, author, and international advocate emphasizing the legal, ethical, and spiritual dimensions of human development and security with a specific focus on advancing the rule of law to address the threats posed by nuclear weapons. Jonathan is also president of the Global Security Institute, senior advisor to the American Bar Association's Committee on Arms Control and National Security, and is a co-chair of the ABA Blue Ribbon Task Force on Nuclear Non-Proliferation. Jonathan is also a senior advisor to the Nobel Prize Laureate Summit. So, Jonathan, I'm so glad to have you back on A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for hosting it. Absolutely. And, of course, <clears throat> while I'm very pleased to have you because of your expertise on the subject and your long-time commitment to the subject of disarming nuclearly and helping uh, governments in different parts of the world deal with this very, in some ways, audacious subject, one that we would have hoped we never would have to discuss because there wouldn't even be a thing called nuclear arms, but in fact we are in this rather difficult and compromised situation. What would you like to bring to uh, the attention of our audience regarding nuclear disarmament? Uh, and first, I would say the armaments themselves and the kind of uh, damage that could be done even with a small amount of nuclear arms, and then what has been done, what steps have been taken by different governments about it. Well, I'd like to just first lay out facts. Facts are really important. And after Please. you have facts, then, then you, after you have facts, then I think it's important to state values and opinions. And then only then is it, uh, is it really reasonable to talk about different policies. <clears throat> People can have different Very policy approaches, but can't really have different facts. That, that's, that, that's, that's very important. Um, yes. So I'd like to lay out a few facts. Please. There are, there's approximately 15,500 nuclear weapons in the world, give or take 500. 95% of those weapons are in the hands of Russia and the United States. Those weapons are still on the same high alert status they were during the very most hostile times of the Cold War. They're on a use-them-or-lose-them basis. So if there's the appearance of an attack, they're launched before the attack could be completed. Mm. There are tens of thousands of people prepared, as we speak, to annihilate the world. 
There are only nine countries with these weapons. The United States, Russia, China, the United Kingdom, France, North Korea, Israel, Pakistan, and India. No one else has these weapons. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is a universal treaty except for North Korea, India, Pakistan, and Israel. Every other country in the world is in it. And in that treaty, only five countries are permitted to have nuclear weapons. That's the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom. They promised all the other countries in the world, over 180, that if they would not have nuclear weapons, and they don't, that they would be permitted peaceful uses of nuclear technology and the five countries with nuclear weapons promised to negotiate the elimination of nuclear weapons if the rest of the world promised not to get nuclear weapons. As you know, that promise has not been kept. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were approximately 15 kilotons, or they're a little less than 15 kilotons. Now, that's uh, more, uh, that, that's, that, that's 15 um, tons of, uh, of, uh, of TNT. That would be the equivalent. And that amount of damage is more than all of the ordinances that had ever been dropped cumulatively in human history in World War I and World War II and all the wars ever. One bomb. And 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons of TNT, is a relatively small bomb now. It's about the size of some of the triggers we have on hydronuclear weapons. Many of the weapons are in the megaton range. It's a million tons of TNT. The Soviet Union tested one weapon that was 50 megatons. That would be approximately 3,000 Hiroshima's. So we can build bombs now that simply... Uh, you mean, exceed. when you say USSR, you mean Russia? You mean modern day? No, it was the Soviet Union did it. Oh, when it was still the Soviet Union. Okay. Yes. Going, um, in other words, going back over 25 years, they had a 3,000-ton... Yes. Okay. No, no, a, 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 a 50 megaton, which would be equivalent to oh. about 3,000 Hiroshima's in one bomb. Yes, 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 yes. Got it. And we, we, we dropped a bomb in the Marshall Islands that was about 20 uh, megatons. Now, these bombs are of destructive capacity that surpass human imagination. And the suffering that they would cause to the genetic pool for genera- one bomb, one of these big bombs, would cause the genetic pool generations to come. We've seen from the testing in Kazakhstan, where the Soviets tested, in the Marshall Islands, where we tested above ground, uh, horrible c- cancers, leukemias, the most horrific birth defects, which are kept hidden from the public. And we don't know, you know, what, it, what, what will happen in the, you know, the genetic pool as generations go forward. But we know that these devices are unworthy of civilization, and I just one more fact, and then I'll stop. You know, we could then get into policy and politics and morality. Sure, and everything. sure. No, this is very um, useful. Very um, useful. It, it, the recent studies by uh, scientists at Rutgers University determined unequivocally. I mean, there's just no. I mean, if you believe in science, I mean, uh, and of course that's up for grabs now. But uh, if you believe in science, it is predictable 
that if 100 of these weapons went off, that's less than 1% of the arsenal of the world, it would throw approximately five tons of soot into the stratosphere, lowering the temperature of the planet by a degree to a degree and a half Celsius for at least a decade. And that would cause at least three billion people to starve and most certainly end any semblance of what we call civilization. So uh, that's a very small number. And the uh, likelihood of our being able to uh, not use them by uh, mistake, human mistake, computer error, madness, or design in perpetuity is probably nil. So we either get rid of them or they get rid of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those, Jonathan, are daunting facts. Facts they are qualitative, quantitative in nature. And I would like to circle back to the facts regarding the current state of affairs, as you stated them, as being virtually identical to the time of the height of the Cold War. Could you lay that out again? Because it's a little hard to digest that because there has been what we have generally thought of as some kind of progress in diplomacy between the nations, United States and Russia. Granted, that has been set back in the last two or so years since the uh, annexation of Crimea, etc. But prior to that, it appeared that the frostiness of, of, of relations had, had tempered and we were on a different footing. Oh, I, I don't look at things like that. I mean, frostiness of relations, that's like pop culture. You know, it's like what Kim Kardashian wore yesterday. You have to look at what actual militaries do and, uh, and, and what, you know, what, what is actually going on, not what the spin is. And this guy's a good Vladimir Putin's a bad guy and this guy's a good guy. I mean, this is not the way nations work. Um, during the height of the Cold War, we were ideologically existential enemies. And, uh, and so we developed these arsenals to point at each other, and the world was kind of a bilateral world. It was them and us. But one of the wise things that took place then through uh, Richard Nixon was one of the wise, wise leaders who understood this, that if we could be mutually vulnerable, that we would not, neither side would have the incentive to attack the other. So we had a treaty called the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, where we agreed that we would not create defenses to the missiles that could hit us from the other side. And that would ensure that nobody would use the missiles against one another. So that, that it's sort of counterintuitive, but it's very wise. In other words, I would never attack you if I knew that you could retaliate and wipe me out. And so we had mm-hmm. a treaty that prevented, that in a sense created a, what was called strategic stability. And when George Bush came in, George Bush Jr. uh, and his troop who came in, the guys who created the illegal war in Iraq, they Mm -hmm. abrogated that. They pulled out of that treaty. So in many ways, we're much, much worse off than we were at the height of the Cold War. The doctrine of the pursuit of strategic stability is still what Russia and the United States say is our doctrine 
of global stability and peace. But the fact is the militaries of both countries now are pursuing privilege and advantage over one another. And we sit at the precipice of a new arms race. But it's much more dangerous than it was in the Cold War because in the Cold War, there were just basically two countries squared off against each other. But now you have nine. And uh, the greatest threat that we face is, is the instability of South Asia between India and Pakistan. You think during the height of the Cold War, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, Mm -hmm. and we had 13 days to kind of work it out. But if there's a computer hacker creates the perception of a launch in Lahore, Pakistan, they don't have that. They have about 300 seconds to decide whether it's a a hack or it's a real threat. And Mm -hmm. so we sit in uh, wherever you are in the United States. We're all downwind from a conflict in South Asia. And uh, during the Cold War, those countries did not have nuclear weapons, and now they do, and they're pointed at each other, ready to go. So it's a much, much more dangerous situation that we were in many years ago. And, of course, the irony is, and I've gone on speaking tours in Russia, the youth of Russia would much rather come and visit San Francisco and New York City than blow it up. And I venture to say most of the young people in the United States have no interest in uh, in killing in killing the population of Russia. And uh, and yet our militaries, yet our militaries operate based on a paradigm that was created at the height of the Roman Empire that kind of goes like this. Prepare for peace, receive war, prepare for war receive peace. The idea being that if there's weakness perceived, then countries will overreach and war will be the consequence. Whereas if there's the perception of overwhelming strength, stability is obtained because nobody would risk the cost. See, this is a very dangerous logic. This was part of the logic that people had, sort of the logic in, um, you know, in, in the turn of the, of the uh, 19th century, uh, Teddy that led to, that led to World War One, where there was the idea where we'll have all of these interlocking treaties, and uh, when we have mm-hmm. when you know they sold the Gatling gun in the 1890s, saying no one will ever go to war after this gun will end war because who's going to who's going to march their soldiers into machine guns? But World War One yeah. proved that proved proved decisively that military planners uh, are quite willing to. To, uh, to, to run soldiers into machine guns. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and presently, presently, our strategic planning is done by, uh, by people whose discipline, military thinking, is, is based on worst-case scenario. And, and what they've done is they've conflated worst-case scenario into the, the normal day-to-day deployments. And I, mm-hmm. I consider it to be I consider it to be um, insane, hazardous, immoral, illegal. And if the people knew what was going on, I think they would stop it immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's another, you know, unspoken danger here, which uh, is a neurophysiological one and uh, psychological, which is the more people prepare for something called a worst-case scenario, the more they're actually entrenching the idea inside the fabric of their own brain material, 
literally into the neurocircuitry. It gets embedded. So it becomes, as you're suggesting, the new normal. And it's held literally in the brain. Well, it is. So, I don't know about the, the – I would say that talking with millennials, with most of the people listening to this, this show, they treat nuclear weapons – very much like uh, like the like the weather, it's uh, it's part of the part of the fabric of modernity, and yes. you know we just sort of live with it and hope that it hope we don't get hit with a hurricane, hope we don't get hit with a tornado. Yeah. Tornadoes happen, but but it, that's not the case. The decisions with respect to these weapons are being made probably by less than a thousand people on the planet right now, and mm-hmm. they they make the decisions regarding these deployments. Without uh, without public debate, without uh, without an informed public, and and the debate is completely distorted. It's always focused on how do we prevent the next bad guy from getting them, whether the bad guy is North Korea, Iran, a drug lord in South America, um, or, you know, or the, or the or the newest dictator somewhere. Uh, of course, nobody wants nuclear weapons to spread. But that diverts attention from the very real deployments that exist on a daily basis that hang over our heads that are unnecessary, exp- extraordinarily expensive. And to quote former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, they're insane. They're of no use against a country that has nuclear weapons because that would be suicidal. You don't use them against countries that don't have nuclear weapons. And they're of no use against terrorists. So they have they don't have a military value, they have a political value. And if the political yes. value is that we're asserting our civilized values through the willingness to annihilate the future of every future generation, to take God's gift of creation back to the the beginning of Genesis, as if mm-hmm. as if this gift as if this gift of the fabric of life was not good enough. That we've created mm-hmm. states and that we'd that will we'll put the entirety of, of, of the living systems of, of this gorgeous planet at, at risk in order to protect the state and, and put everything, everything that everything that has ever been created or could be created at risk because of something we've created. The supreme arrogance of this to court George uh, George Kennan. Uh, the you know the 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 former uh, FBI CIA no George Kennan was the, George Kennan was that that's George Tennant George Kennan was the guy who came up with the idea of the Cold War um, oh and yeah yeah that George Kennan associated mm-hmm. the most conservative American political uh, theorist but and planner uh, he said it's nothing less than a blasphemy before God and I agree with mm. him and and yeah. we slipped into this we've slipped into this. And despite the fact that our, our economy is globally integrated, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone lecture tours in Russia. You know, you talk to Russian, Russian youth, it, it's like, you know, you could be in, 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 in Madison, Wisconsin. And yes, there's, there's, Indiana, sure. It's so, yeah. it's so it's, you know, there's, there's a global culture taking place. Um, yes. I, I've gone to, I've spoken at the University of Nanking, you know, all over. Uh, mm-hmm. People, people, people are not demon. Young people, particularly, are not demonizing one another the way they did. But our military yeah. still plan worst case scenario, which is what their job is. You have to understand that is their job, and they belong at the table. You need. You know, I'm not saying we do away with our militaries, 
but they should not be doing the core planning for our security. We need a whole different paradigm of what is security. Security is protecting the climate. Security is making sure that the phytoplankton, which provides 50 to 70% of our oxygen, this single cell organism in the oceans that we all depend upon, sort of our third lung that requires global cooperation to protect, that that the oceans are healthy so we can breathe that our rainforests are healthy, that we can address pandemic diseases, that we can eliminate the immorality of poverty since we have the wherewithal yes. to do it now. These are real, yes. uh, real security issues. Issues of global security, yeah. Yeah, these are real issues. They're local issues. They're issues that affect everybody. And, yes. and, uh, and our, our political institutions are commercing in fear and trivia. The media, I call, has is, is, is become pornographic. The pornography mm-hmm. is trivial by, yes. a, by exalting the trivial as important and diminishing the importance, the important as if it were trivial. Of what's important. And the worst yes. of all, the worst of all is the cynicism, the cynicism to real serious discussion. Um, th- these are, these are real problems that mature people need to deal with. And our political institutions are not dealing with them. And we, the people, we, the people listening to this, we have to demand of our politicians answers to three questions. One, what are you doing to protect the climate of the planet? Not should you. What are you doing? There's no debate. You, what are you doing to protect it? Two, what are you doing to eliminate poverty? Because we now have the ability to eliminate it, you know, without just, just a, a small percentage of our military budget would eliminate global poverty. And three, yes. What are you doing to get rid of nuclear weapons? Not whether we should. We already concede. Our government and the Russian government both concede that there is a legal duty under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to get rid of nuclear weapons. Now, we're not going to get rid of them overnight, but we need the compass point for the future. We need to know where we're trying to get to. People say, oh, that's so utopian. Well, you know, it was very utopian. It remains utopian. It remains utopian to say that all men are created equal. Certainly, mm-hmm. when Thomas Jefferson said that, when he said that, you couldn't vote if you didn't own property. You couldn't vote if you were a woman. And, and, and uh, people of color Certainly not black. Were, not even, were not even treated as people. They were treated as property by much of, much of the United States. But that ought was put in the ground, and that ought has been a compelling magnetic force for goodness and justice and equity globally ever since we need yes. the ought and the demand to achieve the ought for the abolition of nuclear weapons and any other threat to the future of the planet it is not appropriate for corporations to put our oceans at risk to put our forests at risk it is not appropriate uh, to put the future at risk with nuclear weapons these are demands that everybody listening to this show can simply ask every political candidate these three questions what are your plans to get rid of poverty what are your plans to protect the climate? What are your plans to get rid of nuclear weapons? You, everyone on listening doesn't have to be an expert in this subject. Uh, I'm an expert in it because I'm a wonk. But, you know, there are people yeah. that, are, that don't want to be wonks. They want to enjoy themselves. I yeah. made a commitment to public service. I've made a commitment to, uh, to the future. I've made a commitment to try and ask what would love do? What, would, what does love do in, in these circumstances? Does love ignore does love ignore the affront to the fabric of the continuity of life? Does, does love ignore mm-hmm. the fact that we will destroy the birds? I love birds. 
Does 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 yeah. love ignore the fact that it will destroy the flowers, the, the the trees with these weapons? For me, it doesn't. But I don't think everybody needs to be such a zealot. But they can at least ask yeah. questions and say, you're representing me. We're in a democracy. What are you doing about these things? Yes. And now we have two candidates running for president. So we're, you know, one of them obviously doesn't care. Yeah. He just, just doesn't care. I mean, it's clear he doesn't care. Uh, uh, Donald Trump has said that, that he'd be very happy if, if, uh, if nuclear weapons proliferated, if Japan and South Korea had nuclear weapons. Completely ignoring the treaty obligations of the United States, which parenthetically treaties are under our Constitution, the supreme law of the land, under Article 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution. So he's like, he's just making a mockery of the Constitution. But worse than that, he's not thinking through what does that mean. That means Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines go nuclear. And then it's, you know, then it just goes everywhere. Um, So he he obviously doesn't care. Uh, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, could be influenced. Uh, she's in the same universe as, of logic as most of us. And yeah. uh, we should be demanding not just of her, but, you know, of our Congress people, of our mayors. You know, there's 7,000 cities in Mayors for Peace around the world. It was started in Hiroshima. 7,000. Because mayors, mm. mayors, mayors know that cities are the first targets. Yes. So there's a lot people can do. There's a lot people can do. But they've got So to, back in the 1940s, to, uh, Mayors for Peace was an or, international organization that got formed. No, 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 formed. no, no, no. It only it only started about ten years ago. Oh, okay. But as a it as started, a result of Hiroshima. Well, it was the mayor. It was the mayor of Hiroshima, uh, Tadakashi Tadaka, Akiba, started it. And okay. uh, yeah, now there's about seven thousand uh, cities in it. I was just with the mayor of Mexico City, who hosted a conference of Mayors for Peace of Latin America. Did you know that mm-hmm. 33 heads of state of Latin America issued a statement called C, it's called CELAC, which is the heads of state of Latin America, Central America, and the Caribbean, on nuclear weapons, and said that the threat or use of nuclear weapons is a crime against humanity, violates the United Nations Charter, and, um, uh, and uh, violates international humanitarian law, which it does, because the weapons are mm-hmm. indiscriminate between civilians. And none of this got in any of the American media. Zero. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a resolution now that Congressman Liu of, uh, he's in the area in Southern California, and Senator Markey, who's the senator from Massachusetts, that they're highlighting that the presidential power to use nuclear weapons abrogates or, or undermines the War Powers Act. Because if, if the president used nuclear weapons, the congressional authority under a constitution in which the singular right to, to declare war uh, exists would be undermined. Yeah. Because obviously if you use nuclear weapons, you've got a war going on. Um, yeah. so, uh, so he has legislation saying the, the United States cannot use nuclear weapons without congressional approval, and they cannot use nuclear weapons first. Now, these, these are things that people can support. Exactly. And these are things that are just underneath the rug because the media doesn't touch upon them and the media exhibits no interest in these subjects whatsoever. And, you know, testament is what you just said. When was this Latin American agreement um, put into, uh, into effect? Well, it was, it was a statement they made last January. They've made it several times. Statement, okay. So, yeah. 
So I was at a. So I here we are, a, ten months later, and who knows no about knows. that in the U.S. Yeah. press? You know, Nobody. television, so, radio, so, or print. Yeah. So uh, Senator Alan Cranston and I, some twelve years, no, seventeen years ago, we were in uh, San Francisco, at the Herbst Theater, and Senator Cranston made an impassioned speech about you know the dangers of nuclear weapons and how we have to get rid of them, and Patch mm-hmm. Adams, the clown, was the, the, the master of ceremonies. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Patch Adams said, my God, I didn't know this. This is really compelling. I mean, what do we have to do to get public attention on this before we all die? Yes. Do, we, do, we have, do we have to get naked? Do, do we have to take yes. our clothes off? No, he didn't realize he was in San Francisco because <laughs> uh, he's from Maryland. Well, that's the norm. <laughs> well, so half the audience got up and said, oh, yeah, and they started taking their clothes off. So <laughs> Senator Cranston, Senator Cranston said, "Oh, Jonathan, you know we got to. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm a serious guy. He's a senator. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. So yeah. we, we're leaving. We leave, and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm in a cab. Uh, go, we're, we're, we're at the Fairmont Hotel. There was a conference uh, called the State of the World Forum, and uh, we're on our way back there." And, that, and Senator Cranston said, Jonathan, you have to go back there and stop them because, you know, we're sponsors of this event. And we, we you know, we, we, you know, you have to go stop yes. them. They can't, or, or they can't just get <laughs> naked in the streets. Where, what's going to happen? And so I said, Alan, what, you, what do you want me to do? He said, go back there and stop them. So I got out of the cab. I got another cab. I went back. The Hearst Theater is right in that square, right in front of City Hall in, in, in downtown San Francisco. And by the time I got there, there's at least 150 people but naked, in a, in a circle, <laughs> chanting, chanting, nudes, not nukes, nudes, not nukes. <laughs> and, and so I go up to Patch Adams because I want to make sure, you know, what's he going to tell the press? And he's a very smart right. man. Before I could say anything, he said, Jonathan, don't worry. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get Senator Cranston and you guys in trouble. I said, what are you going to call yourselves? And he said, we are the movement for the naked truth. And, <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, in the papers the next day, you know, with pictures above the waist of all these people protesting. Yes. And nothing, nothing about the substance of the legal oh, commitments on the treaties, the substantive threat that we're under. But it was yeah. all sort of the humor of like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Weapons are still threatening us. Look at these kooky people trying to get rid of them. And so we 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 sit on a boat with a with with fools at the helm, and everybody listening to this now that you know a little bit about it, you should get active and demand answers and say this is this is not your world, planners of Russia. I don't want you pointing weapons at my city. If you're in Dallas, Texas, you've got weapons pointed at you. If you're in New York, you've got weapons pointed at you. And and I don't believe that you want to blow up Moscow or St. Petersburg or the idea that Delhi – let's look at this. India has said we want a universal non-discriminatory treaty eliminating nuclear weapons. That's their position. And they can't resolve the problem they have with Pakistan because India never got the weapon because of Pakistan. Pakistan got it because of India. India got the weapon because of China. China did not get the weapon because of India. China got the weapon because of Russia. 
Russia did not get the weapon because of China. Russia got the weapon because of the United States. And we got the weapon because of Adolf Hitler. So the only way that the standoff in South Asia can get resolved, of which we're downwind, is a global approach. Similar, the only way we can protect the climate is a global approach. So we need to change this right-wing narrative on the United Nations system, and we need to strengthen international norms and cooperation. And listen, the leaders in Russia know this stuff, but they're stuck in the same jam as our leaders. You know, elections are done on, at least in America, they're largely done on fear, taxes, and sex. For sure. Not that different in Russia. Uh, but some so of us have what, to be grown-ups. What would break that logjam between these two superpowers? As you sit where you sit, Jonathan, having seen what you have, knowing the players as well, what could break that logjam? Despite the nonsense well, I, that passes off as uh, important, as you were saying I, I so well think, before. Well, I think, I think that we have some glimmers of hope. I mean, uh, there's about 130 nations last year voted on the ethical imperative to eliminate nuclear weapons in the General Assembly. There is a movement afoot to uh, convene uh, the countries of the world to have a treaty banning nuclear weapons, which will help condemn them. Um, there's, you know, we have the moral voices of the planet, whether it's the Nobel Peace Laureates or the Pope talking about the immorality of these weapons. You just mm-hmm. never know when, you never know when truth will break through the fog. Uh, yeah. it has, it, it has happened. I know, I know when I get to speak publicly, um, or if I get to debate the people who disagree with me, uh, it's usually a pretty much of a slam dunk. The only legitimacy they have is to hide. At one, and as mm. I said, at the height of the Cold War, there was some, you know, there was some legitimacy to the argument, and the posture had some mitigating logic of mutual vulnerability. And now there yes. is now those who now those who propound the value of these weapons or any weapons of mass destruction, any mm-hmm. weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. have no moral or logical credibility. Um, I recently heard Governor Brown give a talk. And he hearkened back to a guy named Gregory Bateson. Gregory Bateson. Was oh, yes, Gregory. The murder of Meade's husband. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, and so Gregory Bateson was a, was a brilliant psychologist, and he analyzed nuclear weapons as a form of psychological addiction to a distorted sense of power. And I yes. totally agree with that. That's yes. what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a totem. Absolutely. We're dealing with, we're dealing with a totem. Yes. And, you know, and totems are based on values and myths. They're based on yes. myths. This is a myth. This is a yeah. mythic symbol of potency. And, um, and mythic symbols can be taken down. Let me give an example. For thousands of years, it was legitimate for armies to use biological weapons. Uh, the mm-hmm. Roman legions threw plague-ridden bodies over the barricades when they laid siege to a city. And people thought that was normal. And, mm-hmm. and, and the, United States, the United States military gave smallpox Chemical weapons. Infected blankets to Native Americans. To the Native Americans. Yeah. Yeah. That was biological warfare. So by the time Richard Nixon became president, he thought, you know, this this is not acceptable. Richard Nixon, when he decided to initiate the Biological Weapons Convention, banning biological weapons, there was no pushback. Nobody said, you know, 
you know, you know, maybe we should ban and not let anybody have the have of smallpox or polio as a weapon, but we'll let nine countries use the plague as a weapon because mm-hmm. they're so good. And yeah. nobody did that, but that's exactly what we're doing with nuclear weapons. We're saying nuclear weapons are no good for anybody, but we'll let nine countries have them. And I think when people but start to even think of it that, that- way, even you know, it's you're one is so out on a plank when one even asks the silly question I'm about to ask. But even of those nine quest, uh, countries, only four or five you said are actually been uh, given permission, so to speak, to have nuclear weapons. Which means that Israel, North Korea, uh, I'm not sure which others. Don't India. actually India even India. have legal permission, so to speak. No, on the contrary, uh, they actually. On the contrary, actually, they're the countries that are legally permitted because they did not accept the constraint of the treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Oh, okay, so I inverted it. Got it. Yeah, the way the way okay. international law works is the way international law works is that you can do pretty much anything unless there's a legal prohibition. Since there was and no if you do not join the, if you do not sign on the dotted line, then you're not subject to the prohibition. Uh, that's the way treaties work. Yes, that's right. There's yes. other international yes. laws that are called peremptory. That even if you don't accept it, it's uh, it's a global norm, and so it's legally binding anyway. It's legally yes. binding. So sla- slavery, for example, is considered a. a it's it, it, there's a legal norm against slavery. So if a country were to pass a law that said people under five feet, three inches of tall, tall uh, are to be enslaved, uh, that would be illegal under international law. Uh, because yeah. even, if, even if they said, they, they said, we don't care, we don't recognize it, it wouldn't matter. It would still be illegal. Um, and there is a body of law, the laws of war, that say that, uh, that weapons of indiscriminate effect or weapons that cause suffering beyond that of a specific military purpose um, th- these kinds of weapons are uh, are illegal, um, and uh, it, when the issue was litigated before the International Court of Justice, the nuclear weapons state said, "Well, you know, there's uses of nuclear weapons that would be legal, like if we dropped a depth charge of nu- a nuclear bomb in the high seas against a submarine, that wouldn't cause civilian damage. That would be legal. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. That would be legal. It, be, it might be foolhardy, but it'd be legal." Yes. Um, and so the court said, we can't in all instances say that nuclear weapons are illegal. I say, I say, yeah, you can figure out an exigent circumstance around law, but you don't make that the norm. That would be like this. The yes. analogy would be like this. There's a speed limit that says you can't go over 35. What city are you in? New York City. Where are you? Go over 35 miles an hour on the West Side Highway. Now you're you're mm-hmm. in the car and you have a woman who, uh, who who her water breaks and she's bleeding and you got to get her to the hospital to deliver the baby mm-hmm. and you know and she's convulsing and she's passing out. Well, I mean, you gun that car and you go 60 miles an hour to get her to that hospital and you get a ticket. You can say, well, I had a, I have a defense. This was an ex- extraordinary exigent circumstance. Life and death was on the line. It was an emergency, and that's my defense. Well, yes. that's an extreme, a unique circumstance. You don't then say, therefore, we won't have speed limits, because right. because there are instances because there are instances in which speeding it might be legitimate. 
You don't then say, well, we'll have no limits at all. And that's essentially what we've done with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Because, because there are instances in which you could argue that it would be legal. The norm of saying you can't target cities. You can't target civilian populations. You can't threaten to annihilate the whole planet. It's crazy. And they say, well, yes. you can't just say we can't use them straight out. There are times we could use them. But, we're, but, but, but they won't then say, well, let's have, a, let's have a discussion in our democracy of when you can and when you can't use them. Let's have a discussion about it. When can you use them? Can you use more than 100 and wipe out? Is that legal? Is it legal for the U.S. military to use over 100 weapons and then end America in order to just show how macho they are or whatever logic they come up with? I don't think so. Yes. I don't think they could withstand a serious debate from grown-ups. And every time yes. you see this stuff on TV, you see some, you know, you see some child arguing with, uh, you know, with some pundit. Let them argue with grown-ups. Yeah. Let's have the debate. Well, you know, that begs a whole other question, Jonathan, is what is a grown-up? Because an argument could be very easily made that uh, grown-ups would never have allowed the proliferation that has taken place to date. And upon cognizing how serious a matter it is, they would have turned this back long ago. And there are a couple of other points I'd like to raise and hear what you have well, to Ronald, say. Ronald Reagan, including... Ronald, Reagan, Ronald Reagan really tried to get, to get rid of them, you know. And George Bush Sr. helped get rid of, uh, of tens of thousands. You know, we have yes. we had we had over sixty thousand. We're now down to fifteen thousand. So, you know, yes. and and the other thing I just want to highlight the way the media is sure. portraying this is 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 a partisan issue, but it's not. You know, the the biological yes. weapons uh, treaty b- banning biological weapons was instituted by Richard Nixon. The nuclear nonproliferation yes. treaty that I mentioned came into force under the under Richard Nixon. The chemical weapons convention banning chemical weapons, the other weapon of mass destruction was negotiated under George Bush Sr. Ronald Reagan called for the universal abolition of nuclear weapons. So, you know, the way this is You're just highlighting the fact that the entire country has moved to use common vernacular so far to the right it's completely frightening because as you say, I mean um, we could really go into this, but it was under Nixon that the EPA was also formed, was it not? The Clean that Water Act, the Environmental Clean Protection Act, Air Act. Clean Air That's Air. my point. Absolutely. So you know, today those are considered, you know, democratic type of liberal thinking, when in fact it was standard thinking for the Republican Party at that time. So you can see how far the dial has moved in a direction. That is not serving humanity. But we, we have to take a look at a couple of other things. One is, uh, what is the money trail? In other words, what are some of the formidable powers that are behind the sale and the upkeep of nuclear arms and uh, maintaining them? And number two, when we say away, when we say disposing of, now you're basically saying 45,000 nuclear warheads that are no longer here. Well, I would ask the question, where in the heck are they? You know, because to dismantle, to deconstruct these things is its own serious, serious problem. 
even 60 Minutes did a segment some years ago at this point on the nuclear arsenals and what it takes to dispose of these things. This is its own extremely complex matter. So uh, would you start then with, um, yeah. with so the money trail? With disposing. Well, first, yeah, I mean, uh, according to Brookings Institute, uh, up till about, I think they stopped the study around 2008, it was about $5.7 trillion with no debate. Just think that in, let that sink in. That's just oh, the United God. States alone. That doesn't include the other countries. So it, the, the, amount of then, money, the amount of yeah. money in, involved in this outside of the democratic process certainly dwarfs the uh, concern over welfare fraud, uh, which would yes. probably be cumulatively somewhere around 0.00001% of that amount of money. Yes, um, right. But I don't think – I see, I, I think that the guns butter argument, in other words, that this is very expensive and people are profiteering, et cetera, is a flawed argument because our adversaries argue precondition for a development of an economy, the precondition for the development of any society is peace and security. So whatever you have to spend for peace and security, it's money well spent. The problem that I see is that these weapons don't bring peace and security. If they brought peace and security, I would be a supporter of spending whatever it costs. Mm-hmm. But they don't. What will bring peace and security is addressing real threats that we actually face, that we yes, have to like address. global warming. Correct. Right, exactly. And you can't face those threats while you're pointing guns at each other. You know, two kids yeah. in a sandbox with, with pistols at their t- various temples are just not going to play well together. And that's what we yeah. have. And, yeah. um, and, 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 and what's, what's really bizarre to me is that the business community, which one would never think of as necessarily a progressive force for good, is mm-hmm. a progressive force for good because uh, fairness in the marketplace Doing trade across borders actually is bringing people together in a faster way than the pundits and intellectual class. The business class transcended yeah. nationalism and is looking at common interests. And we even have these crazy people who want to put up business barriers. I mean, yeah. it's beyond belief. It's as if they figured out every single thing that's good and they've come up with a reason to, to, to shoot it down. <laughs> to you know? block it. Like, like let's take you know, Jesus, Jesus' doctrine of unconditional forgiveness and love, they've turned into a way of having prejudice against people. Um, yeah. The American, the, yeah, the, American, the American dream of a country based on the rule of law, they have a guy running for president uh, without checks and balances. Says, you know, I'll, I'll just run the place, running as a dictator. Yes, it, uh, yes. The you know the the idea of religious freedom they're willing to attack it and say well we'll just do our religion and nobody else's uh, it, you know it'll be a haven for human rights and a haven for the poor of the Statue of Liberty hell no you know I I, I told the um, the mayor of Mexico City is going to probably run for president there and I told him that if Donald Trump does get elected he better build a wall and pay for it fast he kind of looked at me and I said. Because there's a lot of people going to be trying to get into Mexico. Exactly right. That's but, been a joke circulating around for a while. It's, oh, it's to keep the Americans that. out of Mexico, yeah, yeah. not the other yeah, way yeah. around. But, but you see, even that's ridiculous because 
Because that's so of ridiculous. Because Texas, because Texas was Mexico. California that's was right. Mexico. So not who, that long ago. The, not that not long ago. So yeah. who are the usurpers? I mean, it's just so distorted. It's oh, so, it's so distorted. distorted. So few people know anything about about history. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 actually it's if you're not laughing, you're crying at really reviewing what you're saying in this regard. It's true. But uh, people, I, I would. But, but, but before you go, please. People have please. in their conscience. They don't need to know a whole lot, but they need to check their conscience. They need to take a little time. I'm not talking about obtaining enlightenment to understand the nature of your soul and where you come from and the direct mystery of the connectivity (laughs) with the divine. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Uh knowing the beginning of consciousness and knowing the difference between selfless love and love of self. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the power to transform uh, anger into love, hastiness into patience. Uh, ignorance into wisdom. I'm not even getting that far. I'm just saying, take a little time and look in your conscience. Look yeah. in your conscience. And, and that's it. You don't need a yeah. whole lot of facts. Just look in no. your conscience. That's it. That would make such I a difference if we had a little bit of information that said, don't, you know, don't trust what you read, see, touch, feel. Look in your conscience. Look in your heart. Really, really. Yeah. It's a beautiful point, and I, I very much appreciate it. It's spoken like a true Sufi, and I and I, I believe I believe that the same it. that the same power that gave us the intelligence to split the atom and release this power uh, will gives us the wisdom to harness it. And uh, you know, I'm not the I'm not the only I'm not a voice crying in the wilderness by any stretch. This is the, what I'm talking no, about is not very all. much being discussed in the corridors of power, but it's not being discussed in the media. My goodness, the media is shocking. It, and it's this just is one of the main reasons I wanted this discussion with you on A Better World, very much so. What you're saying, of course, Jonathan, is that in certain corridors of power, there is consensus around this. There is some sense of appreciation of the dignity of human life and the preciousness of it, no matter what boundaries one lives within, you know, nationally. And one wants to honor life as a sacred, uh, as a sacred reality. So I I appreciate that. In fact, I wrote an article, I think it was for the Huffington Post, uh, out the time of uh, Obama and John Kerry uh, negotiating the Iran deal. And I I kind of laughed to myself. I said, you know, because I've been very involved in the promulgation of uh, renewable energy. I said, you know, we could put this whole conversation aside, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, If we, instead of funding some of the crazy things we do, why don't we just build a huge solar platform and and uh, wind platform for the Iranians and provide them with renewable energy uh, so they wouldn't even need nuclear energy? How about thinking that direction? And uh, anyway, I <laughs> that just well, that was, I felt like that no, was a no, very no, sane, not, sensible. That's not so utopian. That was essentially the deal that Bill Perry established with the North Koreans. That was oh, the deal. Please tell me. I, I don't. I well, didn't say utopian. Deal. I thought practical and sensible. <laughs> but well, tell me. Practical. I'd like to hear. You well, just met with well, them in San Francisco, correct? 
Well, I mean, the deal that he struck in the 1990s with the North Koreans was that we would provide them with energy, what they needed for energy, and that in exchange for that, they would not develop nuclear weapons, and we would we would move toward normalization. And the deal was done. And Colin Powell, Colin Powell uh, met with Kim Dae-jung in the first weeks of the Bush administration and said, "Yeah, we're going to do it." I was Colin Powell was part of the military that uh, helped negotiate the deal while Perry was Secretary of Defense. And uh-huh. uh, and then and then Dick Cheney found out that Colin Powell had said they were going to do the deal, and he said, "Oh no 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 no, you can't do the deal because this was a deal struck under Clinton, and you can't do anything that Bill Clinton did. It looked like they did it." And uh, then Bush walked away from what? the deal, and the North Koreans ever since have not trusted us. Oh, that's how they got. That's God. what happened. And it's in it's in oh. Perry's book, which I recommend called "My Life at the Nuclear Brink." And you go to Bill Perry's website. And he has a course uh, on nuclear issues that I commend to everyone's attention, the William That's Perry Project. So William Perry Project. Go look at it. William Perry Project. And Thank you uh, for sharing you know, us. And, and this is the Secretary of Defense, for goodness sake, you know. And, exactly. And, then he, and he, explains, uh, he explains this. Actually, if you go to his blog, you can see a dialogue that he and I did before the American Bar Association. It's really good. Yes. Yeah. You know, this was our Secretary Excellent. of Defense. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about like uh, uh, you know, people in the streets, which are very good. And we're not, we're not talking about talking about uninformed people. This is right. not a partisan issue. This is to quote the former Prime Minister of Canada. This is not Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. This is smart, dumb. Yes. Yeah. This is smart. I like for that. me, I think. For me, Alan Cranston nailed it, and he said, nuclear weapons are unworthy of civilization. Unworthy. I like You know, that. and that says so much. Is it practically yes. unworthy because it's not sustainable? Yes. But I think it's morally, morally unworthy. Even if they brought peace so, and security, it's not the way to do it. Yes. I agree, and that's where I take some issue with what you're saying about when I said let's follow the money trail because I feel that those that – produce the nuclear weapons are actually helping to maintain a culture of fear. That's my issue. Other than that, when you say spend money on global security, the way you define global security, dealing with poverty, dealing with global warming, that's a whole other way. I I back that completely. But as it is now, the status quo interpretation is a problem. Yeah, but I Excuse didn't me? come up with this idea. I didn't come up with this idea. You read read Dwight Eisenhower's uh, speeches. Dwight Eisenhower was totally about this. Uh, that, that's Absolutely. what the Marshall Plan was about. That's what the Marshall Plan was about. He said, you know, look, we, we you know we we punished Germany after the uh, after World War One. Now let's build. Let's let's do what. Let's see what generosity can do. Let let's take out. Let's take the high ground. We'll build up trading partners. We'll build their economy. We'll strengthen them. And ended up, we ended up with more security. I mean, these values, human values are at work. You know, being good is is practical. Being human, being human, being human. Now, this is a big secret for everybody. Being human is practical. It may (laughs) not. It works. The golden rule works. works. You know, developing the cerebral cortex and the prefrontal lobes is a good thing. And reaching into the heart has a tremendous amount of value and a lot more fun. That's for darn sure. I appreciate that. 
science is science science is a good way to study the natural world. It may not tell yes, you it why. It won't tell you why, but it'll tell you how. It That's doesn't right. tell you why. Why you got to find somewhere That's else? Right. But how you can find? And you know now we have people saying, "Well, I don't know science. I read a book that says something different." I mean, really now, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, the natural world is a better is is closer to the Bible than any book because because you can if you burn a book you can reprint it but you know when you start burning species and destroying the natural world that bible and rainforests yep stop burning exactly. stop burning our bible that's, that's right our bible. very well very well put Jonathan, if you have a few more minutes, I would like to circle around because you are such a vast natural resource yourself, and you've been so committed for so long. You understand also the the ins and outs of the policy world, and who is the group, or who are the groups that are actually forming national and international policy around this, and I'm getting the suspicion, just as the EU is run by unelected officials, I'm getting the impression from you, as the policy wonk self-described as you are, that when it comes to nuclear, it is not elected officials, again, that are making policies for respective countries. How does that go? What's the story? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, it's true. Um, different countries have different military elites and different security elites. In the United States, it's called the Strategic Command. Uh, they used to be SAC, uh, and now it's this, they're called the Strategic Command. You can you know look them up on the internet. They're they're not like some secret conspiracy or anything. They're quite triumphalist about their beliefs. They want full spectrum dominance. That's the term they've used. And uh, but who, very, who are they? Are they are they generals? Are they in the military? Are they? Well, they're, what, they're, it's a joint. What is their rank? Different parts of the military. Yeah, they're 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 okay. they're almost in the, they're like above generals in some ways, in my opinion. Their influence mm-hmm. is huge, uh, and they mm-hmm. focus on strategic planning, long range strategic, planning, and they control cyberspace, outer space, nuclear weapons, and the strategic mm-hmm. planning. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that by the way, that on nine eleven. Of course, uh, of course, if you look at what uh, President Bush did after he left the, uh, the, uh, the children's program, uh, he, that's where he went. He, he flew to Omaha, Nebraska to meet with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they're very influential. Um, but, you know, there's, it's a conglomeration of forces. There's no, like, one guy behind the whole thing. It's a set of ideas and institutions. The laboratories are extremely influential. Uh, you know there are there are scientific wizards. They're almost like a cognoscenti. But yes. the strategic command is the main place that does our nuclear planning. I see. And so, what is their relationship to the neocon group that cooked up the document known as Project for a New American Century, which oh detail? No, I understand that. Yeah. Yes which details what countries strategically the United States is planning to attack and name as part of a quote-unquote evil empire, among which are Iraq, Syria, Libya, and on China, actually. All of a sudden I felt like Trump. Yes, you were saying. 
what what is the relationship between the strategic uh, commands long-term planning and the development of or the implementation of a document such as that? Is there a relationship? Well, there's certainly a relationship in that the players of Project for a New American Century are extremely influential. I mean, our, uh, the, you yeah. know, the Undersecretary of State who was in charge of our policy toward the Ukraine was married to Robert Kagan, who was the main drafter. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're, you know, they're, I mean, they don't, like Kagan and these guys, they don't support Donald Trump. They're intellectuals. They believe, I mean, let's give them credit for their, uh, some of them, what their analysis is. You know, we shouldn't demonize them. Um, they looked at Rwanda. And they said, you know, if it, the, the international system is callous and doesn't really care about the well-being of the planet and um, and and the countries in the world are not run by legitimate democracy and can't be trusted. America is basically a force for good. We spread democracy, free markets, and many good things. And in the absence of there being uh, an overriding international power to keep law and order, it's really important that the U.S. not be constrained. And um, and flowed from that that really bad actors like Saddam Hussein, they said we got to get rid of them. That's their belief. And they, you know, they ignored the fact that the U.N. system worked very well in Iraq, that Hans Blix's people got rid of the weapons of mass destruction. That's why they weren't there. They Mm -hmm. believe in U.S. exceptionalism, which to me is completely anti-American, where we're supposed to be. You can't spread democracy and say, you know, everyone's equal but us. We're somehow better than everybody. It's just We are the best. But. Yeah. yeah, but I think that the neo the 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 coterie within the military, um, it's a different culture, a different group, and they they were there before the neocons, and they are not subject to them. Now, having said that, their worldviews overlap in many ways. I mean, the but but that's but it is proper for the military planners to have in their in their playbook uh, uh, things to do if international cooperation and order totally break down but mm-hmm. we, need, we used to have let me we said we used to have a countervailing institution in the United States called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency that John Kennedy mm-hmm. started after the Cuban Missile Crisis the idea being that there would always be people lobbying uh, passionately for the military because there's money to be made, but that who's going to, mm-hmm. who's going to do like what I do lobby for getting rid of weapons and peaceful solutions. There isn't any short-term money to be made in this. So we actually had an agency of the U S government focused on doing that. And uh, Jesse Helms, um, uh, in order to get the uh, chemical weapons convention out of committee to be voted on, negotiated the closure of that institution. So presently, one of the problems we have is we don't have any institutional uh, structure focused on advocating arms control and disarmament in our government. Mm. And that's – in our government, the way we did things you know, is the model for many other countries. So that's a big problem is we don't have an institutional is there, voice. Is there no Not one institutional in... voice, it's, it's people like me have to you know, bang yeah. on – pots and pans and get some attention. 
Well, who do you appeal to? You are traveling around the world. You give lectures at universities. I understand that. You're appealing to millennials. But on the level of policymaking, who is it that you bang on the doors of? Diplomats. The diplomatic community has made – we've made enormous inroads in the diplomatic community. I mean, if the diplomats – if the diplomats were actually allowed to do their job and the military yes. and the military approach was somewhat minimized, I think many of these problems, global warming, nuclear weapons, would be solved quickly. There's a class yes. of diplomats from all over the world that know each other, and they're smart, and, you know, they, they could solve they it. Understand. We know the solutions. We know the solutions. Yes. Solutions to nukes are yes. a cutoff on the production of fissile material, banning any further nuclear testing, strengthening international inspections, um, you know, there's steps that can lead to strengthening the constraints and building security for all. But, you know, the militaries don't want that. They don't want anybody telling them no. You know, they, don't, they believe that their power and their strength must not be constrained because they're forces for good. So we need other voices at the table. And that's why I thank you so much for letting me talk to your who, – who have I been talking to? Who's the audience for this show? Oh, millennials. <laughs> and Where? people of, and, well, they're actually all over the country, and we have also an international community. You know, this is online podcast radio, A Better World. So we can get picked up. We have a newsletter that goes out to some 70,000 people, Jonathan, with your photograph, you know, um, right on the cover of it and the description of you and your background and a link on our radio archive from here on out. So because the site is visited by people internationally and because the newsletter goes out uh, internationally as well, that is who is listening. Oh, good. So listen, if anybody there wants to you know, have a serious discussion or do anything in this area, uh, send me an email at granoff at GS Institute, and, um, uh, and, and you know, we'll, we'll give you some ideas. But, you know, I'd Beautiful. love to do Granoff at GS Institute. Go ahead. .org. I'd love to do a Got show it. with you about uh, values and spiritual awakening, about recovering yes. our humanity, recovering our humanity in a world in which uh, the human endeavor has been reduced to producing and consuming, producing <laughs> and consuming. Yes, yes. Which is a no. In fact, is, you did you know, mention looking yeah. at values at the very top of the show, so I'm glad yeah. that you are remembering that to bring it up now. I, I wholly agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, let me just clo- yeah. let me just close with uh, a document. I commend everyone's attention: the Albert Einstein Bertrand Russell Manifesto. Einstein realizing what he had unleashed when he broke the code for the atom and Bertrand Russell being one of the great philosophers of modernity and a bunch of other physicists and similar people. Um, they, one of the things they did was they started the uh, world Academy of art, art and science of which I'm a fellow, um, which mm-hmm. is very strong on this issue, but the, in their yeah. essay, in their essay, they end it and say the following. It's something to the effect of it stands before you, uh, horrific destruction or extraordinary creativity. And then they say, remember your humanity. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. 
<laughs> That's beautiful, Jonathan Granoff. Thank you so much for sharing with our audience so much of the experience, both external and internal, that you have had, and it forms so much of your work. And uh, please keep it up because you're uh, you're not a voice in the wilderness. We are right behind you. And in fact, you know and I know that there are literally tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions, that feel these ways about these subjects. And we want to live in a safe, secure world for one and all. So you're helping to drive that train. Thank you. Very Thank much you very much. It. Absolutely. We will have you on God again. Bless. God bless everybody. Bye. Thanks. You too now. Bye-bye. Jonathan Granoff, our guest today for the whole show, talking about these uh, quintessentially important subjects that we just do not deal with in our daily parlance. It's not part of our daily pedestrian routine of considering the literal seriousness, which he made abundantly clear that we are actually more endangered now than we were at the height of the Cold War for the series of reasons that he mentioned, uh, not least of which was the abandonment of the treaty that was set up uh, and canceled by G.W. Bush. And I remember when that happened, it was unilateral. And as far as I know, that's not allowed. One side cannot simply withdraw from an agreement. It takes two to tango, and there has to be some kind of settlement of the chain. Unfortunately, is part and parcel of American arrogance. It's human arrogance at the most fundamental level, but it's especially a U.S. arrogance that just has no place in that way, from my point of view, on a world stage. And this is why we are held in such contempt in so many pockets of the world, a country that was really formed with a vision to do good, as Jonathan was saying, and we are perceived, have been perceived as that for, I would say, the most of our historical lives to have been jeopardized, from my point of view, primarily starting during the Clinton administration, yes, I know that may sound funny, but that's what I mean, and carried through with G.W. Bush and, unfortunately, Obama, which is a continuation of G.W. Bush. So, well, that's my opinion. Many would disagree. Uh, some could make the case that the insidious nature of U.S. dominate dominator thinking began way before that, and I would not say that you were wrong. I would say that the seeds were there from perhaps even the very beginning, but they ripened rapidly, I would say, during the seemingly democratic uh, administration of Bill Clinton, well, I should say both, and it was under guise of democracy and neoliberal thinking. But in fact, I have said over and again that Clinton was, as is his wife, 
a Republican in Democratic clothing. And that is kind of uh, funny to say in light of this discussion with Jonathan because his references to Dwight Eisenhower, general and Republican, and Richard Nixon, Republican, did so many actions, uh, conducted and enforced policy that would be considered highly progressive today and nothing like the current state of the Republican Party today. And to me, we have actually devolved in many ways, not evolved. Again, I know that's not a popular opinion, but I'm sorry to say I feel that we have not actually been making human, evolutionary, civilized progress. We've gotten a lot better with technology. That's true. And some geeks have sharpened their brains rather remarkably. And we've had some awesome breakthroughs in scientific and medical understanding, physiological understanding, and natural ecosystemic understanding. I'm all for that. I think it's fantastic, the breakthroughs that have occurred largely in science. Um, However, overall, looking at humanity, uh, the setbacks strike me as greater than the forward progress. And uh, I want to be wrong, and I want to be proven wrong even furthermore. And I am hoping that you, listener, will prove me wrong. In that light, please be in touch with me and for your comments and your suggestions at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. I truly appreciate all of your comments and look forward to hearing from them. Remember that we, A Better World, is a 501c3. We are a nonprofit, and our ability to sustain these thoughtful conversations with wonderful guests, such as tonight's Jonathan Granoff, with his world of experience, bringing them uh, those experiences to our airwaves is remarkable and we want to thank him profoundly for his service our ability to continue on with us is through your kindness and donations so thank you very much for them again visit us on our website abetterworld.tv abetterworld.net same thing abetterworld.tv and if you do not yet get our weekly free newsletter, sign up for it. And if you are interested in any of our other services in the domains of healing and coaching and counseling and consulting and speaking and workshops and retreats, go also to www.mitchellrabin.com. My name, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N, personal or business, coaching in micro and macro domains uh, interested in being of service to you. Thanks again, and I look forward to speaking with you all next week. And please take so much of what uh, Robert had to share with us to heart, because that's where he comes from, that's where I come from, 
and it's all designed to reach your heart and spur on action that will actually transform and upgrade the world. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all.